0: Um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support.
1: Hi, you're listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast, a podcast about breaking into the world of finance along with interviews with those who have. I'm your host, Alex Grodnick, and today we are speaking with Darren Pleasance, Darren's the Managing Director for Google's Global Customer Acquisitions Group. We'll get into exactly what that means in one second, but let me first tell you that Darren has an MBA from Anderson. He worked at McKinsey for many years, and now he flies his airplane to work at Google. So let's jump into it. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gundlach, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com WSO.
0: Pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah. So, you, I met you in business school. You came and gave a presentation, a really incredible presentation in a class I took on innovation. But I was just so enamored with your presentation that I had to get you on the podcast. And so that's what this is now. And, you know, I think our listeners would love to hear about your background.
0: Uh, Yeah. Happy to share it. I am. So I, today, what I'm doing, and I'll, and I'll go backwards and talk about the, the journey to this point, but uh, today I lead a team at Google called Global Customer Acquisitions, which is essentially responsible for bringing in all new advertisers to Google's business. So we go out and look for companies around the world who don't yet use Google's digital marketing products, AdWords, call it, uh, and we work with them to help them understand how digital marketing might help them and uh, work with them then to um, to shift some of their advertising spend to, to digital and then help them be successful with that. So that's, that's my job now. I've got teams in a little over 20 countries around the world, and, uh, and my goal is to work with those teams to help uh, introduce digital advertising to companies everywhere. Um, prior to this, I was at McKinsey & Company for about 15 years and um, was a partner there leading a bunch of work in our uh, marketing and sales practice, did a lot of work around sales and channel um, strategy, a lot of work in um, small and medium business, SMB, um, and, uh, and basically through that experience was able to um, do a bunch of work both in technology as well as in other industries for whom small and medium businesses were a big uh, big part of their business, so it'd be banking, credit cards, uh, um, some sorts of retailers and so on. Prior to that, I was um, working in private equity, uh, in a small private equity shop down in, uh, in Santa Barbara, Nanko Enterprises, it was called. And then uh, prior to that, I was a pilot for really from about, well, started when I was 13 years old and uh, became a flight instructor, then a um, charter pilot, and ultimately flew for um, corporations and wealthy individuals. I flew for John Travolta for a while. I went to Alaska, was a, a bush pilot uh, flying off of uh, glaciers and other parts of Alaska Um, and then ultimately landed a job as a corporate jet pilot for a private equity firm in Santa Barbara, which then led into that private equity job that I I mentioned a moment ago.
1: Right. And that's just an incredibly interesting background. I definitely want to hear more about how you get new businesses to advertise on Google, but let's start at the beginning there. You were a pilot, you were a pilot instructor, you soloed when you were 16 years old and you took that job being around. I would say, you know, inst- wealthy individuals who were involved in private equity to wiggle your way into a private equity fund. Tell us how you did that.
0: Yeah, I think that was largely um, the, the fact that when we weren't flying, in general, the way it works for pilots is when you're not flying, then you have time off. And I was in my 20s at that time, and I was interested in, uh, in what happened at the private equity firm. And so the principal, uh, who was the, the founder of the private equity firm and, and uh, the person I spent the most time with was um, encouraging of me to uh, to come into the office if I was interested and work with the CFO um, and begin to understand different parts of the business and learn some of the skills. So in that process, I learned how to uh, build cash flow models, do business valuation work, review purchase contracts. Um, the company also owned quite a bit of commercial real estate, so I had the opportunity to start helping to manage some of that. Um, so basically, over the almost five years I was there, I, I went from Um, kind of an associate just beginning to understand stuff to actually very active in the business to where at the end, I was probably 20% pilot, 80% private equity associate, whereas at the beginning was 100% pilot to no, no private equity activity.
1: That's great. That's uh, an inspiring story. I think a lot of people want to get into private equity, they think they have to go do investment banking or consulting first before you can get into it. But you did an entirely different path.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it was, um, you know, good attitude, the fact that I was was willing to learn. um, And uh, I'm guessing it was as much that, right? I I had the opportunity for sure, which came via the flying angle. And so I had access and exposure to these individuals. But then the fact that I raised my hand and asked to be given the opportunity, they didn't have to pay me any more to do that. It really just, uh, it was an investment of my own time. But that investment uh, ended up paying off substantially. I think it made for a fantastic set of experiences and learnings that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise that absolutely made for more interesting stories when it came time to apply to business school. I'm sure to some extent my, my story stood out from others in that I had had a pretty interesting path to that point in my life. And I think it demonstrated a bit of initiative taking and willingness to enter a world of pretty high ambiguity and, and just try to figure it out.
1: Right. And then so what was the thought process? Now you're working 100% of time at this P firm. What was the thought process of why business school?
0: Um, a lot of it came down to I, I was always this weird anomaly inside the PE firm where I'd be the pilot and, they all, and, and all the senior execs that I would fly around would often laugh that I was this pilot who, oh, by the way, could also build a spreadsheet and, uh, you know, figure out the value of a business. And, and so I always kind of felt like this weird anomaly, which was kind of fun, but it also felt like I was not really real. Um, I didn't have any you – know, nothing in my background suggested that I should have been qualified to be doing that because I was an undergraduate. I was in mechanical engineering. Uh, I had worked at a couple of startups, mostly aviation-related, and then done all this flying stuff. So I really didn't have anything that would suggest that this should be a sort of legitimate brand of mine. And so I just felt like going to business school would give me something in my background that legitimized some of the stuff that I was um, that I was uh, I was learning on the job. What's What's interesting is um, I fully expected to come back to that job. I kept that job while I was in school part time. I would go to school Monday through Thursday, and then spend Many Fridays and maybe a part of Saturday up in Santa Barbara, uh, which is basically a large part how I chose UCLA and, and Anderson was because it was close and I could do that commute. Um, what was uh, what was interesting is when I got to Anderson, though, of course that exposed me to a whole world of other opportunities out there that I had never even known of, and uh, including consulting, I looked at investment banking, a whole bunch of different roles that uh, that were pretty new to me. And, um, and ultimately that led me into the consulting path, despite having assumed I would go back into that private equity path, leaving business school.
1: Right. So out of school, you went to work for McKinsey and you were there for a long time. Did you think, okay, I, I, have got it now. I'm going to go work for McKinsey. I'm going to build my career here, my life here. I'm going to be a partner here, which you did. And you thought this is it, right?
0: Yeah, it's, um, I'm going to answer your question in two parts. I'm going to add a question to your question, <laughs> Um, which is how did you end up at McKinsey? Because it is actually an interesting step, and to, to the extent that some of your listeners are uh, in career change mode or perhaps even in business school, I think this is an important piece of the story. I was actually interviewing. Uh, I learned about consulting. I thought it sounded exciting, a chance to see the world, a chance to learn new things, a chance to work with Fortune 500 companies, which is something I hadn't done at that point. Uh, and so I started interviewing. and I interviewed with uh, with Deloitte and Accenture and, uh, AT Kearney and all of the, all the firms, including McKinsey. And I essentially got dinged by all of them, including McKinsey. I got, uh, in the case of McKinsey, got to the second round, but then got dinged. Um, and uh, as luck would have it, Arthur D. Little came in, another consulting firm. Um, and there's a longer story about how this exactly happened, but I ended up getting an offer to join Arthur D. Little and um, back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, our headquarters, which I took and then moved to Cambridge. I worked there for two and a half years. It went great, really enjoyed myself, and then McKinsey called again and asked to hear what I was up to. It turns out that I apparently had done fairly well in the interviews, but my background relative to other candidates they were looking at really wasn't at all um, relevant to what they were looking for, you know, despite having thousands of hours of flying time. <laughs> that didn't matter much to them, And um, and even the PE work was interesting and intriguing, but not exactly what they were looking for relative to candidates that had perhaps worked in other Fortune 500 companies. So they were checking in to see what I had done, and in that process, um discovered I was in consulting, I was uh, doing stuff relevant to what they were trying to do at that time, and they put me back into the interview process, and through that process, I ended up getting an offer to join McKinsey, and I subsequently left Arthur D. Little and joined McKinsey and, and was then there for 15 years. So I think that it's an important step in that part of the story to McKinsey that um, I thought is important to share. because it is stressful in, in school. It's stressful anytime you're making a career change. For me at that moment in school, the fact that I didn't get into McKinsey did feel pretty disappointing, um, but it was just a few years later that things completely turned around for me. And then back to your original question, uh, I was at McKinsey. I thought I'd be there for just a couple of years, like many people are, and move on. And instead, I was there for 15 years and uh, had built a great network, um, really enjoyed what I did, was doing well at what I did. I built a, a uh, sort of a brand around the topics of sales and channel strategy around small and medium business and really wasn't looking to leave. Uh, and then Google approached me. They had been searching for someone to lead a global team mostly focused in the small and medium business segment. They wanted somebody who had some consulting experience uh, since there was a lot of strategy involved as well as, as sales execution. And uh, if you read the profile of the type of person they were looking to hire, it couldn't have been more closely matched to the experiences I had had over the prior 15 years. So it actually worked out perfectly. And uh, I ended up deciding that for me, it would be a, a more interesting life story to have spent 15 years at McKinsey and then X years at Google and to have spent 20 or 25 years uh, doing consulting. And that was ultimately what, uh, what led me to choose to come to Google.
1: Right. And it's kind of interesting how you say these opportunities came to you. I, that's kind of how I found it in my life too. A lot of the opportunities don't come from where you think they're going to come. So you probably never thought Oh, I'm going to go work at Google, and you were happy working uh, not at McKinsey. But then these things present themselves, and um, life kind of has its way of figuring itself out.
0: Yeah, I think there's a bit, uh, you know, there's a, there's a bit of serendipity. Probably a lot of serendipity that uh, happens in anyone's career, which I think to me is actually, um, uh, I think it, it's nice to remember that you don't have to be overly stressed about exactly how your career is going to unfold. I would say I, I always tell people when I talk about career uh, management, um, there's really only three things you can control pretty much in your life, certainly in your career, but really probably in your life. And so focus on those, the rest of the stuff just, just happens. Uh, and those three things are skills. You can focus on what skills you build and how you invest your time to get better at certain things. And then my, my bias is you should invest in skills that that you're excited to have, as opposed to investing in skills you think will make you a lot of money or will be impressive to your family or friends. Uh, the second one is relationships. You can invest in getting to know people. You can invest in helping other people. Uh, in almost every situation, it was relationships that occurred through those types of investments that ended up opening doors that I could then step into. Uh, and third is the attitude. Uh, I find I work with people who are a glass half empty types of people, and they're always looking for why something happened to them or what's bad about the situation. And there are people like I am which tend to look at pretty much any situation and try to figure out what's good in it. And uh, many times that has been what's resulted in me being given opportunities that might not have otherwise come my way. And the good news about all three of those is those are three things that are 100% in your control.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes great sense. So thanks for the background piece. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your work at Google now.
0: Great. Yeah. So I I lead a team of about 600 um, Googlers and then over a thousand sort of dedicated vendor reps that sit in call centers around the world. And we work closely with our marketing team and our engineering team to uh, sift through the roughly 150 or so million businesses in the world to find the few million or even less sometimes um, of companies who will become Google customers in that year. So it's, uh, although say a million customers sounds like a lot, out of 150 million, it's still a very small percentage and kind of a needle in a haystack problem, and so a lot of the work I've been doing has been around how do you take advantage of the massive amounts of data and analytic power and computing power we've got, uh, married with the super talented people we've got who are, who are great at whatever role, whether it's the sales role, whether it's the marketing role, how do you marry those in a way that allows us to drive high volume, high quality, um, customer acquisitions. So new, new customers, um, in a way that's, you know, very efficient and, uh, and effective. And so in a sense, it, it Taps into all of what I did in consulting, a lot of analytics. Um, it taps into what Google is kind of known for and really good at, which is um, which is uh, uh, utilizing information in a way to help drive business performance. And uh, and I believe strongly in the products we sell. You know, our, our products are designed to help businesses succeed. And so it feels good when you help introduce uh, Google AdWords to a company. They start using it. They discover they can basically access the whole world through digital marketing, and through that grow their business far faster than they thought they could. Uh, and we have amazing stories, especially in the small medium business space, of someone who might have had a hobby doing something, discovered digital advertising, and through that converted a hobby into a profession, and they are now able to put their kids through college and do things they couldn't have otherwise done. So it's a it's an inspiring role to be in, as well as a for uh, sort a of personal personally satisfying building on all the things we've built on.
1: Right. Yeah. And in class, you talked about integrating. Technology into the sales process and that's kind of been a a big piece of your of what you've been tasked with
0: it has been yeah, we call it, you know, it's kind of science to sales and um, And it has been saying okay How do you take a sales funnel and look at every piece of it all the way from even even pre-sales? If you talk about all the lead gen upper funnel awareness building consideration and so on um, how do you take that entire end-to-end process and layer in technology to try to make it as efficient and effective as possible and then the answer for that um, differs depending on what types of customers you're going after. If it's if it's the um, the head, if you will, the, the top customers, that may be more sales heavy and less marketing heavy, and more human engagement heavy uh, as opposed to technology uh, engagement heavy. And then the long tail may be just the opposite, right? Much more self-service, much more marketing intensive, much less sales or human intensive, and um, and so stitching that together in a way where, where technology is basically playing a role in every one of those stages for every one of those sales models uh, has been super challenging but also very rewarding. We've had some amazing successes and um, you know, I, I achieved a lot of what I had hoped to do when I was in consulting, and now I'm in a position to be able to actually do it with the, the teams we have around here at Google.
1: Right. So talk about the difference between being a high up at McKinsey versus being high up at Google. Is it, is, do you have more of an ownership um, mentality on the company side
0: um, yeah you have, you have to have more decision rights I'd say there's there's a lot of similarities um, you know it's uh, consulting is all about influence right you have almost no decision-making power and so as a consultant a lot of your success is driven by your ability to engage with executives across an organization and help convince them on what path they should take and if you're effective at that they'd make those decisions and they move forward It's not that different even in a, in a company like Google, because almost every large corporation has some degree of matrix where not, not everything rolls up to one person other than maybe the CEO. And therefore to get anything done at a place, you've got to be effective at influencing key stakeholders, many of whom don't report to you. Um, and so in that sense, I think the skills I built in consulting have played very well in the world of, of Google. Um, so I guess I would call that very similar. What's different though is I do have more, I guess two things. I do have more ability to set the agenda and and drive what I want to versus what sometimes the client wants to do in a consulting environment. Um, Two, though, I think is also very important is I have a time horizon that's different than consulting. Consulting is often three months, that's a project, three, maybe six, whatever, um, which is often to get to an answer, but then you have all the other work that has to get done to land something. And I guess uh, in this environment, I enjoy the ability both to help come up with the answer, the recommendation, but then see it through uh, into implementation, which some cases, maybe six months, some cases, maybe several years. And that, that sort of longitudinal view on stuff to me has been very satisfying.
1: Right. That makes, that makes great sense. So Google, you spoke in my innovation class, Google is probably one of the most innovative companies. How do you think about that? What do you attribute it to? How, how do you innovate in your
0: group? Um, I mean, reality it definitely starts from the top. I mean, if you were to talk to Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the two founders, uh, you would see that from, from them on down, there's a huge ethos around innovation, around um, failure, around an expectation that in, in the process of innovating, failures will occur, and that's actually a perfectly fine thing. And so you'll I found a, a much higher appetite here at Google to try things and if they don't work, you know, declare they don't work quickly, but then move on and and you're not penalized for that type of thing. So part of it's just cultural uh, and acceptance and an expectation around continuing to push the limits. We have a language here around 10x where it's not good enough just to tune something and make it better. People expect you to think about how would I 10x that? How would I make it 10 times better, not just 10% better? And and not everything lends itself to that, but it's a helpful and I think a, a healthy lens to put on almost any problem of substance, any meaningful area of opportunity. If you take a 10x lens to it, it definitely pushes you to think dramatically differently. Um, I mean, those are probably the two biggest differences, just the overall culture and then the, the, the mindset. Um, and then when you add, you take all of that kind of, um, that's more sort of the mental approach to it. And then you add to it, you know, an amazingly talented group of people. We've got engineers and marketers and salespeople and analytic people um, who all want to to drive to the next level of, of, um, of you know, capability or whatever dimension of innovation you're looking at. And so it's not hard to get an engineering team to mobilize behind you to go do something important if they're also equally inspired and, and believe it really could be game-changing if they were to be successful.
1: Right, so in the beginning we talked about your passion for flying and airplanes and behind you there's pictures of airplanes. So how do you incorporate that passion into your life now?
0: Yeah, it's, um, so I've been super fortunate in that sense. It's very much a part of my life. I live in Oregon, uh, Bend, Oregon now, which was a a decision I'd made back when I was at McKinsey, uh, mostly for lifestyle reasons. I just thought it would be nice to raise kids in a place where they could ride their bikes to school and, um, spend time on a ski mountain and hike and bike and fish and do all the things that I did growing up. Um, and since with consulting, I was on the road all the time, four days a week, it didn't really matter where I lived. So I, I optimized for call it lifestyle and, and quality of life. Um, when it came to Google, that was just part of the conversation with them, was that uh, I was not going to leave Oregon. That was too important to me. However, I did commit that I would spend a lot of time either in Mountain View or someplace else in the world with the teams. I wouldn't be an absentee manager. And so what that's meant is that I've been on the road probably as much in my Google career as I was in my consulting career. Uh, the main difference, though, is that I uh, I get to control when I go somewhere, so there's some power in, in choice. Um, but also to your question, I have my own plan. I've had my own plan for a lot of years, and um, I put it to good use basically every week. I fly myself down to work in Mountain View or wherever I'm going, uh, typically on Monday, and I fly myself home on Thursday. If it's a long-distance flight, I'll fly myself to the closest international airport and then catch a flight to Dublin or Singapore, wherever I'm going. Uh, and so that basically keeps me very uh, active in aviation, despite the fact that it's no longer uh, the, the the career that I'm pursuing.
1: Right. And I think that's so cool. You know, you talk about passion and balance in life and it's, it's great at your level that you're able to bring those back into the picture. But when you were starting off at McKinsey and for the advice for the listeners that are beginning their careers, they're passionate about something that's important. They want balance in their life. That's also important. How do you think about, um, getting those things?
0: Yeah, I have a, um, uh, I can't share the chart with you just cause, just for the medium here, but I have a uh, a point of view. I, I I basically say there is no such thing as balance, which sounds a bit extreme. Um, but what I mean by that is, and I did I kind of this epiphany came to me in uh, at McKinsey probably three three or four years in, where everyone was struggling with work life balance and everyone was working crazy hours and there's often weeks where it's 80 maybe even 100 hours a week and and so everyone wrestles with those things and um, it occurred to me that all of us have the same 168 hours in a week. And so it really comes down to how do you choose to spend those hours uh, and what does good look like and being really um, thoughtful and conscious of what good looks like. How much time is spent on sleeping, on eating, on relationships, on things you do for fun. And, and, um, and so I broke those 168 hours into those kinds of things around health and happiness and relationships and work. And I kind of put a stake in the ground and said, what does great look like? What does a perfect week look like? Um, and then what I use that to do is to guide myself or or help calibrate myself when I was off because more often than not, I was not living that perfectly, um, uh, aligned week, which is why I say there's no such thing as balance because balance implies a level of stability and consistency. And that's just not the real world. I don't think, I think you're always being pulled in different directions, especially if you have kids or other responsibilities in addition to work. I think the main takeaway that's kept me very well grounded was, um, that happiness line I mentioned in there, that was all about me. It's like, what time do I need every week that I find important to regenerate and to rejuvenate my own energy and and really right. stay happy? And a lot of that for me, for instance, was around flying. And so I just made sure that I would allocate four or five hours on a weekend and go flying. Right. Uh, and My wife, for her, it was horses. She would go do horses, and we would just find ways to make sure that those things didn't get taken away. Um, what i found is that often people get into busy careers and the things that go away first are the things that they love doing themselves. The happiness line, I would call it. The other thing that goes away is often sleep and health. They don't go to the gym. They don't sleep as much. And you know, that may be okay for weeks on end or even a few months on end if there's something really important. But often uh, people let years go by without any real grounding on on um, the fact that they are, in fact, living a life that's very different from what they would construct if they had drawn that chart that I talked about. So to me it's about choices um it's making choices on how you spend your time it's about realizing that at moments in time it may be completely fine to be off balance in an unhealthy way but then know that it's it's not right and then be making corrections back to what's good over time and i guess the last point i'd make on this theme is um i had a friend they have a friend who uh who says he revisits his career every october 7th and he asked why every october 7th and he found that so well, I found there were just too many ups and downs over the course of the year. And in any one of the downs, I was tempted to just quit and move on to something else. And, but then a few months later, it would be an enormous high, and he was thrilled to be doing what he was doing. And, uh, and he found that those ups and downs were consuming a lot of energy that really wasn't very productive. So he said instead what he would do is every October 7th, he would look backwards and say, am I happy I was here for the last 12 months? And did I, do I feel like I grew and I learned and I'm better off today than I was a year ago? And then similarly, am I confident enough about the year ahead that I think I will achieve the kinds of things I would like to over the next year? If the answer to that second question is yes, then he commits to the next year and doesn't entertain any, any conversation in his own mind around whether he should come or go over the course of that year. So I, I think those, are, those have all served me very well in a you know, very challenging, intense kind of, uh, kind of lifestyle that pretty much all of us are leading, leading these days.
1: Right. I think that's a great story. So, Darren, I'll get you out of here on this. What does someone need to do to prepare themselves to get a job at Google?
0: Um, well, we um, we look for several things. I think at the core, it's um, you know, we look for leadership. I suppose that the, the absolute, and this would be true, frankly, at McKinsey, too, and I think is probably true of most high-performing organizations, is one is evidence of leadership. So um, what have you done in your past and also through the interview process that can demonstrate that you are someone who makes things happen, um, uh, operates effectively in teams, but is not just reactive, but is proactive in helping to shape the outcome. There's there's a huge importance on leadership. Um, We look for, um, we call it the GCA, general cognitive ability. You can call it you know, how good a problem solver are you. That's what we used to call it at McKinsey. Um, And so we want people who are good at taking ambiguous situations and can structure it. Uh, in a thoughtful way to take basically complicated and make it simple as, as, simple as possible. And then through that structuring, think about, uh, how one might go about solving a problem. So problem solving skills are, are definitely important. Um, and I guess the one here that, uh, that tends to knock most people out is the Googliness. And that's probably the least clear, certainly people outside of Google, but there's definitely a, a cultural fit question that comes here. and, and uh, there's a distinct effort here not to just hire people that look like us, right? We want a diverse workplace, and we're putting enormous energy into that. What we want, though, are not people that look like us, but the people that thrive in an ambiguous environment that um, enjoy that kind of uncertainty that goes with life here at Google, that uh, that do like working as members of the team and don't feel the need to be the person on top, right, the person who shines, that they're, they're fine um, uh, celebrating wins as a team as opposed to an individual. Kind of a no ego type of, uh, approach to life. And, and, uh, I'd say by and large, we're pretty successful at that. If you work with people around Google, they're, they're almost all fun, low ego, super smart, uh, thrive in ambiguity. Love the fact that it's unclear exactly how the world's going to look even in six months here at Google. And that's what keeps them going. Uh, So I think to the extent you can hone, either those are describing your attributes or you can hone those kinds of attributes, you're likely to be a good fit for Google.
1: Okay. Well, Darren, this was so much fun talking with you. Thank you very much.
0: My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, pleased to do this.
1: Okay. Thanks again. And thanks for listening. If you like listening to this, you should subscribe. You can find it on iTunes or at wallstreetoasis.com. We have more podcasts coming for you, so we'll be back soon with another great guest. See you then. Also, leave us some comments on iTunes. Let us know what you think, what we should add, what should happen going forward, and maybe leave a few stars. Stars are always good. Thank you.